You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. We rejoice with Jacob and what God has been doing in his life and uh, are excited to celebrate with him as he's baptized during our 11 o'clock gathering. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you would open to Ephesians chapter 4, and as you find your place in Ephesians chapter 4, I want to remind you that just under two weeks from now, uh, we have our serve day. Uh, We do this twice a year or have been doing this twice a year where we get together as a church and uh, try to get as many of our members as possible to serve in strategic ways. Uh, So there will be uh, the opportunity to pack meals for foster families. Uh, to to make meal kits for those who are in food insecure settings, uh, to serve in one of our neighborhoods with a block party and many more things. So uh, go and register the whole uh, family for Serve Day. Thank you that service is not just a part of uh, what we do uh, once or twice a year, but it is ongoing in the life of our church. Uh, Hopefully you saw on social media, but this past week, the Niceville Chamber of Commerce uh, recognized our church uh, with the UROC Award for our service to the community. So I just wanna say thank you Uh, to those of you who constantly and faithfully serve the Lord in so many ways. And we do it to honor God, uh, but it's uh, cool to see that uh, that work is honored by those in our community. Uh, Hey, if you have a heart to serve the Lord and uh, a specific set of skills, uh, we're hiring. Uh, So uh, God has been blessing our church. We've grown. And so we have some needs. Uh, One is for a uh, maintenance position to kind of do handyman or handywoman uh, work around our campus. Uh, Another is to uh, oversee, and these are all full-time positions, our uh, media uh, and uh, some IT stuff. And so uh, that's another one. And then a third uh, is we're looking for someone to kind of uh, oversee communications and help with coordination of events and uh, just kind of all the things. Uh, And so uh, we would love if you are skilled or you know someone uh, who's skilled and uh, maybe has has great character, has great character uh, to join our team. And so uh, send us your resume. You can find more information about that online. Well, before we get to our text today, which is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32, I want to read verse 17 through 24, which we looked at last week to ensure that we get the connectedness here. So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 24 to start us off. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So last week we talked about progression. And we looked at how you are progressing. You're not staying neutral. You're not staying still. And and you might be progressing without God. And that first step of progression without God is foolishness. That's really what it means to live without God, is to be foolish. And that leads us to a place of darkness as we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, and that ultimately leads us to a place of callousness or a hard heart, and God gives us over to that. 
And then we talked about the fact that we are called to progress in Christ. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that's not the way you live in foolishness and darkness and in callousness, but rather you're to renew yourself after removing uh, sin from your life and to be renewed constantly by the Spirit of God and ultimately to walk in righteousness. Righteousness is our position as someone who is saved by Jesus Christ, but righteousness is also the direction of our life. And so we walk in this direction because of who we are in Christ. When you know who you are, you know what to do. So when you know that God has saved you, that's really the impetus. When you know that you belong to Jesus and that the riches of God are yours, that's the impetus for growth. Now, as I say that, I realize that there can still be challenges in the lives of Christians to walk in righteousness. This was true early on. Clinton Arnold, uh, who's a biblical scholar, says people today sometimes over-glamorize the life of the early church. This passage helps bring us back to reality. The believers in these house churches were lying, were struggling with anger, stealing, dirty talk, hard feelings, and even bitterness. And there is nothing here that is unique to the churches of Asia Minor. These are tendencies that Christians everywhere have had to deal with. The first word of our passage this morning in verse 25 is therefore. So Howard Hayner says, having established the believer's position as a new person, the inferential conjunction here points to the desired application of this position. So a change has happened in the life of Christians. That's what Paul's saying. And so a change has to happen to apply this. The God, God has to work in our life. But then he calls us to this intentionality in light of our identity. An intentionality in the light of our identity. And he gives us five character changes for us to walk in, in verses 25 through 32. So let me read those verses, and then let's walk through those five changes. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Have your way in our time looking at it this morning. May you get glory in Jesus' name, amen. The first transformation that Paul tells us about here is the transformation from lies to truth. From lies to truth. Verse 25, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
He says, having put away falsehood. Now, some translations say it in a way that it is a command, like put away falsehood. But the Greek language is that this is already happening. So since you have put away falsehood. So again, Paul's, as he refers to these things, he's talking about this transformation that is happening because of our identity in Christ. And he's calling to walk intentionally in these things. Now, falsehood means lying. One of the first things people ask is whether it's always unacceptable to lie. And we have examples of people lying, being commended in the scriptures. The Hebrew midwives lied. The Rahab lied to hide the spies. And there are examples in history that we would commend. Corrie ten Boom hiding Jewish people in her home in Holland during the Holocaust and, and others doing the same. And undercover operations that uh, protect one individual or protect many individuals. Based on the extensive scripture dealing with this and the sound mind that God has given us, I think that this is dealing with character. It's talking about someone who lies to position themselves better, that falsehood is a part of who they are. And so we can see this happen when people try to exalt themselves. And so they lie to make themselves look better. Or when somebody wants something and they lie in order to try to get that thing or when someone's trying to protect their image or protect themselves and their things, and so they lie. You see, these are the distinguishing marks of a liar, someone who is trying to exalt themselves, someone who's trying to gratify themselves, and somebody who's trying to protect themselves. We may have been told that when someone's lying, their nose gets bigger or their pants are on fire, but the reality is that it's this exaltation of self and gratification of self and protection of self. And this is humanity's default, to live this way, unless there has been a cultural influence, an intentional teaching and instruction not to do so. And, and what Paul is saying to the Christians is he's saying, there has been a cultural influence for you as citizens of the kingdom of God, as members of the family of God. He also says this in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter three, verse nine, he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul's saying, and we looked at this last week, that whenever you become a Christian, you take off the old clothes and you put on the new clothes. And lying is a part of the old wardrobe. And now you're to be a person of truth. And God is very concerned with his people being people of truth. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, Paul is referencing Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 in the Old Testament here. Those verses say this, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. The prophet speaks to these things in a day in which God's people, the nation of Israel, is corrupt with lies in order to get our way or to advance our cause. And this text here is speaking to a, a responsibility to move from falsehood as a way of life to intentionally speaking the truth. When the New Testament uses the word truth here, it's the Greek word aletheia, which means an objective truth. It means a truth that comes from God. He's not talking about subjective truth. He's not talking about my truth or your truth. He's talking about the truth. And this should be obvious, but I think we need to take note of it. You must know the truth to speak the truth. 
So get to know God's word and get to know God's people. If you are to be a person who speaks the truth, you, you have to know the truth. And so you need to get to know what is God's truth. And you need to get to know people and not just operate on assumptions. This is key to being someone who speaks truth into people's lives. For we are members of one another, the text tells us. That word members means limbs. It is always used in the context of the human body or the body of Christ. Our identity in the body shapes the direction of our life. And our goal as Christians is the building up of the body. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, when Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the desire of God's people, to speak the truth in love. This is how we live our lives. And it's both and, it's truth and love. It's truth or true judgments and making peace. It's always both of those things. It's moving from speaking in a way that is full of lies to exalt ourselves and gratify ourselves and protect ourselves to speaking in a way that is truth and love to build up the body of Christ for the cause of Christ. That's the first transformation. The second transformation that this speaks to is from anger to peace. From anger to peace. Verse 26 and 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What we see here is a warning about an escalation that can take place. First, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Some of us were raised to think that any feeling of anger is wrong. But that is not a Christian idea. Buddhists teach that the annihilation of, um, of emotion is a virtue. Christians do not believe this. The Bible actually teaches anger as a necessary part of love. Anger is a destructive energy that is released in defense of something you love. It may sound bad, but think about it. If you see someone in your family, or your church family, or even a stranger who's treated badly, it's good to have anger about that. If, you, if there's this great need that exists and no one is doing anything about it, but they're consumed with their own lives, it's good to be angry about this need that needs to be met. If you see your own sin and you don't wanna be that anymore, or you don't wanna be that way anymore, it is good that you're angry about your own actions and choices. The word anger is actually used in reference to God, so it cannot be sinful. I think it might be better to translate it, be provoked to anger and do not sin. But the reality here is that there is a good anger, and good anger, the Bible tells us, is mixed with grief. An instance where Jesus is said to get angry is in Mark chapter three, verse five. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath about to heal a man's withered hand and the Pharisees are completely opposed to what he's going to do. And it says, Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, one of the charges that the world likes to make about Christians is that we believe in a judging God and therefore that makes us judgmental. And I would say this, that only spoiled Westerners who have never really experienced injustice in themselves could ever have a problem with judgment. 
And it leads, whenever you begin to go down this road, to another moralism. Today, we live in a day where we cannot tolerate intolerance, but we're therefore intolerant about certain people's intolerance. All it is is a sliding morality that exists uh, today. And, and I just want you to think about this. To declare that someone is judgmental takes judgment. And so it is logically uh, flawed to think that judgment altogether is a bad thing. And so this text and the other places in the Bible tell us, be angry if you must. And when you are angry, though, do not sin. Paul's quoting Psalm 4, verse 4, which says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Paul's saying those feelings of anger exist and let God work on them in you and ponder them in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Now, I want you to think about that in light of what Paul says is the escalation here. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And the word anger there is actually a Greek word that's uniquely translated, and it's talking about an escalation of anger. Now, in their day, they would be very familiar with this idea of sunset being when wages were settled. So when you shouldn't owe anyone anything anymore. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying if there's anger in your heart, you have to settle it at night so that it doesn't carry over to the next day. Now, this brings me to a common misconception. People think this means everything has to be resolved in any conflict that you have at night. And that's not going to happen. Not all marriage conflict is gonna be completely resolved every single night. There are people who say, well, that's the case for us. Well, good for you, but that is not the normal. You might have a long-standing, ongoing conflict with a family member that doesn't get resolved at night and goes for years. You might have a conflict with a coworker or a teammate or a church member that keeps going. Now, I used to, Christy can testify this because I take the Bible pretty literally, think that that meant if Christy and I were fighting at 9 p.m., we were gonna stay up till 4 a.m. figuring it out. Now I have six kids, I'm too tired for that. <laughs> That's not what it means, but what the text means is we've gotta settle the anger in our heart at night. Now, I did hear a story one time of a couple who had been married for 50 years who never fought the next day about whatever was going on at night. And the husband finally asked his wife in front of some people, how were you able to just go to bed so peacefully even though you were so upset with me? And she said, I would just go and I would clean the toilet and then I would calm down. And he was impressed that she would serve them in some way. And she said, using your toothbrush. Now... <laughs> I don't think that that's what the Apostle Paul is saying when he's saying that we have to settle this in our own hearts. But realize, he's saying, don't let the sun set on your anger. You might not be able to resolve the conflict here, but don't let that anger escalate in you. Settle it with yourself. First century Jewish writings describe anger as a magnet that attracts the working of an evil spirit. I heard one pastor put it this way. There is a time to get angry, and the time to stay angry is short. And there's a second escalation here in the text. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. You see, that's the escalation of anger and its danger. It is good and healthy to experience periodic secretions of adrenaline 
in reaction to dangerous situations, but a steady flow would damage your heart. And so it is with anger. It has damaged many hearts because it was not put away, but instead it was nurtured again and again and became a life-destroying, consuming grudge. Howard Hayner says, the devil twists and distorts the truth, and if there is no quick restoration between parties, further anger mounts, and if we don't deal with it, dissension and revenge often result. And when Paul says no opportunity, he's using a word that could refer to a place. And what he's saying is anger can visit, but it's not gonna live here. Don't give it anywhere to live in you. That's the second transformation from anger to peace. The third is from taking to giving. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I don't think I need to spend a long time on this because it's very plain and, put, and, and straightforward, but understand this is not figurative language. This is ta- Paul talking about stealing. Stealing which comes in all shapes and sizes. Seeing something that isn't yours and taking it. Or not doing a job that you are fully Uh, paid to do, or not paying or sharing the portion of something that is deserved by someone else. Paul suggests that with the new self, a transformation should take place where we are in touch with our creator and how he has created us to work. Work is a good thing. Rather, it is a God thing. Adam was given a job before the fall. Today, people tend to view work in a negative way, but as a Christian, we understand it is a great part of how God has designed us on this earth. I remember in Bible college, one of the students in class asking our professor, hey, do you think that we call it job because Job and job are spelled the same and job is suffering? And we all shook our head. Um, But there is this mentality that says work is suffering until you get to the weekend or wherever it may be. But for a Christian, we are to delight in the reality of work. I mean, we see, and I'm thankful for government programs which help those who really need it, but we have seen a cultural shift amongst people who think, hey, I'll just take from the government and not be motivated to work hard. Or we see women who, you know, are, are, are indulgent or men who are indulgent about the comforts and scrolling our phone and distracted from the responsibilities that we have even in our home. The text tells us, rather let him labor. And that word labor means work that leads to weariness, doing honest work with his own hands. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 echo this. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 34, Paul models this. Christians are called to be hard workers. And Paul says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. A Christian wants to position themselves that we can be in a place where we might be able to be as generous as we possibly can. John Wesley said this, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. What a great principle to live by in our life. And and I realize we have to recognize our tendencies here because there's a temptation to bury ourselves in work, to escape in work and neglect the things that God has called us to do in our home and our church and wherever it might be. And there are others who have the tendency to not work and and to barely get by. And there are those who have the tendency to steal and not be honest and those who have the tendency to not be generous. And, And I would just say we have to recognize these tendencies and we need accountability to speak into our life because we wanna move from people who steal to people who work and give, from taking to giving. Number four, from gossip 
to grace. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. When Paul says corrupting talk, it means worthless talk. And this is traditionally translated as either slander, which he refers to in verse 31, vulgar and profane language, or gossip. Gossip to grace was a better alliteration, so I stuck with that one, but they all apply. The point here is that what comes out of our mouth should not be destructive. When he says the word there in the end that um, uh, destructive, he's talking about, or corrupting talk, it's actually talking about rotten things. And so the image in Paul's mind is probably one of rottenness and decay, something that is spoiled. Gossip, crude language, and demeaning language spoil things. Paul says we should be speaking in a way that it only such as is good for building up, or I memorize this, that is for the benefit of those who listen. An old adage is, is this truthful, is this helpful, and is this necessary? And some cliches are cliches for a reason because they're good. <laughs> is this truthful? Is this helpful? Is this necessary? Paul says, as fits the occasion, according to the need of the person in the moment. In the, in the Bible, it tells us that the tongue must be controlled like a rudder of a ship. It sets the direction. And what I would say to you is we need to know our destination so that we use our mouths to get us in that direction. And the destination is the benefit of the people who are around us, the building up of the body of Christ. This is the transformation from the old self, that we would move from being people who vent simply because it makes us feel good to really asking, is this benefit the people who are listening to me? That we would move from being gossips because we like to be in the know to being people who put an end to gossip. That we move from people who say whatever because it gives us laughs and reactions to guarding our crude and profane language. And that we would avoid being people who tear others down, which makes us feel better because we're called to build people up that it may give grace to those who hear. The word grace means unmerited favor. That our speech would be something that propels people to a place of unmerited favor. That it would move people who don't even deserve it to a place where God is blessing them and showing them his grace. We must remember the power of our words to build up the body of Christ or to tear down the body of Christ. You see, sticks and stones will break bones and words will destroy the church. Sticks and stones will build church buildings, and words will build the church. I don't know that sticks and stones actually build a church building. I'm not an architect. That's why we have Steve Renna, our administrator. But the point here is that what tears down the church and what builds up the church, the people of God, are our words. And as a Christian, we must be aware of this and intentional with this. Paul goes on to say in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The language here is that this is connected to verse 29. And Paul is saying that it grieves the Spirit when our mouths are corrupt and not benefiting others. When a believer speaks this way about another, it brings grief to the Holy Spirit of God. I've noticed with my children that when I get frustrated or angry, angry with them, it might create a motivation. But when I am sad and grieving about their actions, it creates a different kind of motivation. Child of God, your heavenly father 
The Spirit of God grieves when you speak in a way that tears your brothers and sisters in Christ down. You should be moving from gossip to grace. Last, number five. And I believe these kind of all lead to this from bitterness to forgiveness. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. The word bitterness is com comes from the word gall. It's a drink that when you drink, it's bitter. Uh, when I was going over this on Friday morning, I actually received an email that said a story about bitterness. And I thought, okay, that seems very coincidental. And so uh, I'm gonna read that email, the story in that email now. It says, Jim Talley and Terry Benner in their book, True Colors, tell the story of a man named Joe who decided to take an afternoon walk through the foothills just above a lake where he had been fishing. Joe was comfortably dressed in shorts, a t-shirt, and tennis shoes. Suddenly, he felt a sharp pain in his leg as he stepped over a small log. It was then he noticed a large diamondback rattler slithering into the undergrowth beside the log. He looked down at his leg and saw that he was bleeding from two small puncture wounds in his right calf. I must get to a hospital, he told himself. But first, I'll find that blankety-blank snake and kill it. And so Joe began a frantic search for the rattlesnake that bit him. He spent precious time looking under logs and turning over rocks in search of the snake. Meanwhile, the venom quickly coursed through his body with the exertion of the search, leaving Joe dizzy and weak. He turned to go back to his car but after only a few steps, he collapsed on the path and lay there as the venom traveled to his heart, ending his life. Hours later, the sheriff found Joe's body and called the paramedics. They concluded that Joe had died of a rattlesnake bite, but they couldn't understand the reason he had only been five minutes from his car and 20 minutes from the nearest hospital. Joe could have survived his encounter with the rattlesnake. It's simply that, in his anger, he wanted revenge on the rattlesnake more than he cared about the seriousness of the rattlesnake bite. We are all familiar with the slogan, I don't get mad, I get even. And I know that maybe someone has wronged you or things that have happened that are wrong in your life, but when you allow bitterness to guide you and lead you, it's destructive. Now, I have a little visual here. Um, I wanted to bring a real snake but we don't have the budget for that. And I'm scared of snakes. And by the way, if you're visiting our church today or watching a line and you're like, man, I don't know, I haven't gone to church in a long time. And you're like, I hear they do weird things like handle snakes. <laughs> today, that's kind of true. Um, so I, I took this fake snake from my children. I don't know why we have this giant fake snake. But um, when you... Don't deal with the bitterness in your heart. It is like walking around with a live snake around your neck. A live, poisonous snake around your neck. And you might wonder why people kind of react the way they do to you. It's because they're worried that thing could bite me at any moment. And you might be thinking, if you just joined online, that dude looks ridiculous right now. You look ridiculous. If you're letting bitterness have its way with you, it's ridiculous. And it doesn't really affect even the person that you're bitter towards. 
What they are doing may be wrong and they need to change and they deserve the justice of God on their life. But if you are bitter, it's around your neck. It's putting you at danger. It's causing you to have trouble in your other relationships. And you have got to get rid of the bitterness. You have got to let God deal with that right now. Paul says, and wrath and anger, which are synonyms, and these words mean uh, breathing hard and movement of agitation. I mean, when you have this bitterness, it really begins to affect the way you breathe and the way you move. And he says, and clamor, which is an outcry. And, and it's a word that can be used for a shout of joy. We see that in the case of Elizabeth. Uh, that shout of joy is not a bad thing, even though some Baptists think it is, but it's not. But here it is a bad thing because it's this overflowing speech it's this overflowing talk and you begin to just it begins to just come out of you all the time and it's all you talk about because you have this deep-seated bitterness that you haven't dealt with slander the strongest concordance says that speech injurious to another's name Paul is saying that's the worst escalation of this is that you begin to talk about people in a way that defames them and it hurts them and malice you have evil and ill will towards them this is what happens if you don't deal with the bitterness. And at the very greatest reason that I can appeal to you not to do this is that it grieves the spirit of God. And he's called you not to do this. And I want you to look at the contrast here between this and how we should live. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another. It's a transformation. He says be tender-hearted. The literal translation of tender-hearted means to have strong bowels. That's how they talked about people who were compassionate. I, I don't know that you should put that on your resume today if that's characteristic of you. Or if at someone's funeral, I said, you know, he really had strong bowels. I don't know that that would land today like it did them. But for them, it meant this person is moved towards people to be tenderhearted, to have compassion for the mess up. Or compassion for that person who is insecure and lies. Or to have compassion for the person who's angry because of the trauma in their life or who steals or is lazy because they were taught to look out for number one, or who speaks so poorly of others because of the bitterness in their heart. Paul's calling us to move from being that way to being compassionate towards those who are in that way. And he even says when it's directed at you, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I've been asked throughout the course of my life a lot lately how I feel about people who might treat me poorly. And I mean this when I say this. I cannot have any bitterness in my heart towards any person when I remember that God demonstrated his love towards me in this, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. The debt that I owe Jesus that he has forgiven me of is far greater than any debt someone would have toward, towards me. This it's the story of a Christian. The incredible grace of a holy God on our life and it affects us. C.S. Lewis says, for a long time I used to think this is a silly 
straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate a man, or not hate a man, and hate what the man does? And he says, but years later it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I've been treating this way all my life, myself. I hate what I do, but I don't hate myself, and we ought to have that same outlook about other people, and we ought to forgive them the way Christ has forgiven us. This is the distinguishing thing about us. It is hard for bitterness to remain in your heart when you reflect on the love that God demonstrates towards you in Christ. That's the motivation for the transformation. From lies to truth to anger to peace, from taking to giving, from gossip to grace, from bitterness to forgiveness. This is the motivation. We're here in in this chapter where Paul's really given a lot of specific things, but you have to remember that Paul spent like three chapters just explaining the gospel and the promise of God in us. And I I just, if you're here today and, and you're a liar, or if you're here today and you're angry, or you're here today and you're a thief, or lazy, if you're here today and you're a gossip, if you're here today and you have bitterness, the answer is not take the dirtiness of your life and try to, try to get rid of some of it. Because what you're doing, A, it's gonna take a really long time. And secondly, what happens is you end, end up being empty and you just get filled with something else. What Paul is trying to help us understand, what the Bible is teaching us is rather than this moralism and this religion, that there is a well of living water that doesn't run dry. And the answer to whatever bitterness is in our heart and whatever sin is in our heart is just this water beginning to come in here and overflow to where it begins to push all this dirty water out. Now understand, in Christ, the moment that we give our life to him, righteousness is our position and we are made clean. But what happens is we are filled with the spirit constantly. It's all the sin begins to remove. God begins to transform us and the power of the gospel comes true in our life and we see this happening. And so my encouragement to you today is to be filled with the spirit of God is to allow Jesus Christ in the gospel message that God was perfect and holy and came into this world for people that were imperfect and unholy and not seeking him, died on the cross, the wrath of God satisfied on the cross, then rose from the grave in victory, showing us the power of the spirit over death and promising us the power of the spirit over whatever it is in our life to just abide in that. So my great application to you today is not stop lying, Start, start working hard. Stop gossiping. Even though I hope those things happen, my great application is to, in, to you is to remember the power of the Holy Spirit and to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Spirit of God and let the gospel work in your life. Let's pray together. Father, God, I pray that today we would not exchange the great power of the good news of Jesus Christ for moralism or religion or legalism. But God, that we would understand the great news of who Jesus is, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we don't need to get all the dirt out of the cup. We just need the gospel to come into our hearts. And God, as we are filled with the Spirit, you begin a transformation in our life that will be perfected in the days of Jesus Christ. Oh, how glorious the riches are that belong to you.
and are ours in him. And so God, I pray today that the person who's struggling, that who feels unworthy, they would lay it at your feet first. David said, against you and you only I have sinned. God, help us to confess our sins to you. Help us to open our hearts to you and have your way in us. Whatever that means for every person who's listening this morning, help us to be transformed into your likeness and to see the fruit of your power washing over us. In Jesus' name, amen.